Okay, you jackals, I'm back. I'm a little rusty, I will be perfectly honest, as I always try to be honest. With everything I'm doing online and in my life in general, uh, I have a sinking suspicion we might have some new listeners this week, as I have made an announcement about transitioning away from using YouTube and uh, really consolidating my life online back here once again on my Shifter site. I've had a site like this under several different names going back to 2002. I prefer just posting stills and writing. That's my favorite thing to do. Video is great, but it's also incredibly time consumer and labor intensive. And um, I've learned a lot about YouTube, my experiment, if you will. Pretty much over, but I'll explain that in a little bit as we get, we get further into this absolutely world-class podcast. Now, for those of you who are new, there is a protocol here. And if you don't know it, well then F you. No, I'm kidding. If you don't know the protocol, it kind of goes as follows. And I'm looking at my levels here. I'm kind of, it's getting up there. I guess I can, whoa, sit back and relax a little bit. By the way, I've got a couple of ink cartridges on the way today. I've been writing quite a lot and I burned through these uh, ink cartridges, which is always a good sign. You know, when you're ordering consumables, whether it's paper for your printer or uh, you're ordering books or you're ordering ink, you know that life is going along at a good clip, at a good pace. So typically the protocol here at For What It's Worth, which is me talking about random subjects that literally not a single person on planet Earth asked me to talk about. Basically, we start with uh, a segment called Who Is This For? Who is this podcast for? Like what would a typical listener, who would they be? What would they believe? How would they think? Then I talk about the hero of the week and uh, the goat of the week. And the goat, I don't mean greatest of all time. I mean ass. I mean goat as in donkey, as in ass, as in clown. And it is always far easier to find the goat of the week than it is the hero of the week. I just think that that's human nature. I think we are a virus. And uh, <clears throat> typically we are do we're, we're up to no good. Let's just be perfectly honest about that. So for who, let's, just, let's just do a little trial and error here, a little trial run. When we talk about who is this podcast for, if you are still rocking, if you're a man and you're rocking leg warmers in public, I think you're going to like this podcast. Like I think, and, and when I say a man wearing leg warmers, I once saw a guy speed walking in a full body leotard with leg warmers. And I was not alone. I had multiple family members in the car. So I have witnesses to us witnessing what this guy was wearing in on a public road, mind you. And there was just stunned silence in our car. No one quite knew what to do. I, I tip my hat. I commend the, commend the guy. I would never do the full body leotard and I would never do leg warmers, and I would certainly never do them together. And I think he had some sort of bizarre hat on as well. But if that's you, if, that, if you hear that and you're like, hey, wait a minute, that's what I do, you're going to love this podcast. I think uh, also, if you are one of these people who think that Space Force monitored the 2020 election and that the Biden family is currently in Guantanamo and will be executed on live television in the coming months— that's the kind of critical thinking that you're going to want and need to be a part of this podcast. I think if, if you believe that is true, and believe it or not, 
I know a couple of college-educated folks who I've known my entire life who are 100% down with that theory. They told me that at some point in the coming months before the 2024 election, that the emergency broadcast system will be put into play. So I'll be watching TV if I had a TV, if I'm listening to the radio, if I'm online perhaps. All of a sudden you'd hear that annoying high-pitched squeal saying this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. If this were a real if this were not a test, you would probably be vaporized by now. You know that signal that I'm talking about here in the United States, the emergency broadcast network. They think that that will be deployed and that it will, all of the television channels and all the radio and all the online outlets will immediately switch over to a tribunal that is happening at Guantanamo and Biden and his family will be executed on live television. These are college educated people who believe this. So if you're in that group, welcome aboard. Welcome to For What It's Worth podcast. You're going to get along here just fine. So our hero of the week is not just a single person. It is a demographic, and it is a demographic that I absolutely love. The hero of the week is Florida Man. And if you don't know about Florida Man, well, you got to back up a little bit. For those Americans out there who are listening, I'm pretty sure you guys all understand and know about Florida Man. But for you Euro trash or South American trash or... Asian trash, or anyone from other parts of the world. I love you, all of you, by the way. But uh, Florida is a very bizarre place. It's a peculiar place that breeds a certain kind of individual, very specific and unique to the United States. And Florida man will do things that defy logic in every sense of the word. And again, these are the kind of people that I'm hoping show up here on the podcast. So the hero of the week is Florida Man. If you want an example of what Florida Man would do, you just have to Google or search Florida Man. You'll see things that deal with petty crime, petty theft, nudity, drunkenness in public. It's all beautiful, and it's all what makes Florida Man one of my favorite all-time demographics. The goat of the week. This is hard. Like I said before, there's always more goats out there than there are heroes. I think that has been a probably a consistent factor throughout the history of our species. And uh, there's two goats this week. I haven't really given this a whole lot of thought. They just popped up in conversation with a couple of other people. One of these here, I have two. One of them was like, oh, I forgot about that guy. And, And frankly, I shouldn't have forgotten about him because he was kind of front page news for the past couple of years, but he was a complete weasel. And he disappeared very, very quickly Um, and slunk back to his rock in, by the way, somewhere in Florida, ironically. And the other is just a tool that's been in the news far too long, and I just cannot wait for his retirement. But the first go to the week is Ron the Con, Ron DeSantis out of Florida. Now, again, Americans are very familiar with him. Absolutely no sense of humor. The worst public speaker, well, the second worst public speaker out there, guy had an inability to smile to be actually normal. And Ron DeSantis, by the way, is a governor of Florida who was running for president on the Republican ticket and just got his absolutely got his ass handed to him by Trump, which we all knew what would happen. But before he did this, he changed Florida law to make it possible for him to return 
to the governorship in case he didn't win the Republican nomination, which is a completely and utterly, an utterly gutless move, which is reminiscent of who this person is as a human being. He's a vile human being. He loves to berate women. If you've ever seen a press conference with Ron DeSantos, the second a female reporter asks a question, he just goes berserk. It's the same sort of chauvinistic attitude and approach that a lot of politicians have these days. And so Ron just slunk back to Florida after he got his ass handed to him by Trump, and uh, he just disappeared. But this guy, I can't imagine living in Florida and having him as a governor. Let me remind you, Florida not only has Ron the con, you got Marco Rubio, Tim Scott, and uh, Matt Gates all in the same state. That is like a, I don't even know what you call that. That's a home run in my book. The second go to the week is Aaron Rodgers, former quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, a damn fine football player, by the way, and now the quarterback of the absolutely complete and totally dysfunctional New York Jets. I could care less. I'm a Saints fan. The Jets don't exist for me. And the fact that your team is in turmoil and imploding, I love. Only better for the Saints. And by the way, congratulations to the New Orleans Saints for winning Super Bowl 58. Wait a second. Hang on. I'm getting a, uh, getting a report here. Oh, turns out the Saints did not win uh, this last Super Bowl. My bad. Someone else did. I did not watch the game. I could care less about football in the Super Bowl, honestly. Those days are long since passed in my, in my history. Uh, the second goat here is Aaron Rodgers. And I don't know if you guys know, if you don't follow the NFL, then you may or may not be aware of like what kind of tool this guy has really become. Aaron Rodgers fancies himself as the smartest guy in the room. And Aaron Rodgers, there is not a conspiracy theory or anti-science idea that he does not condone. This dude, and, and by the way, if you are the smartest guy in the room, you would never say that. You would never say it publicly. If you are a critical thinker, you would never say that publicly. And yet, Aaron Rodgers does it all the time. And not only does he do it, but he does it in the most condescending of ways. And this is what happens when you're very successful and you're very isolated. And you might be smart for an NFL player, but in the grand scheme of smart, my friend, you are nowhere in the top of that conversation. And to come out and call yourself a critical thinker and to say that you're the smartest guy in the room and to do it in condescending ways like saying, quote, I know it's a novel concept, but I like to read, unquote. That is just, to me, it's such evidence of isolation and no real friends. Because if you had real friends, they would say, dude, you're a douche. Like, stop doing what you're doing. Great if you want to read. Great if you want to do your outside research, but you know, we live in an era where people say, quote unquote, research, and they go to Google and they Google something and they look at the first listing and they don't look at the source and they just take it for face value. And that's why guys like this kind of think they're more intelligent than they really are, but he just rubs pretty much everyone in the wrong way. And this is also, by the way, the same guy that was when asked if he'd been vaccinated against COVID said yes, but he kind of made this face and then it turns out that he wasn't vaccinated from COVID, that he had done some sort of quote natural vaccination and then had exposed all of his teammates to the virus, all of these things. Again, this is not some this is not a good dude. I know a woman here in Santa Fe who has a car that's hand painted 
that has like slogans all over it. She actually lives quite close to me. She's a neighbor. She seems incredibly nice. She's like, I have a cure for COVID, but the government won't let me release it. That's the Aaron Rodgers. Like that, my neighbor is the local version of Aaron Rodgers, where 30 seconds into a conversation with her, you're like, you know, she's pretty nice, but she's completely out of her head. Like she doesn't have a cure for COVID. It's not, the government doesn't even know she exists other than the fact that maybe she's paying her taxes, but that kind of thing. It's nuts. That's our go to the week. Let's recap. Who's this for? Anyone rocking leg warmers or anyone thinking that uh, Space Force monitored the election? You're my kind of intelligent. I want you here and I appreciate your time. Our hero of the week is Florida Man. And our go to the week is both Ron DeSantos, Ron the Con, <clears throat> and Aaron Rodgers, the uh, backup quarterback of the New York Jets. So just as a recap, this week, no, I, I, that's, a, that's a bit of a mistake. Maybe I'll, I'll say two weeks. Let's see, 1,567 pages read in two weeks. Minutes on social media during that same time, zero. Let me repeat, zero minutes spent on social in the last two weeks and 1,567 pages read. I think it's actually more than that, but I'm too lazy to go get the book I'm reading right now and add to it. It's Michael Lewis's new book. And I read everything that Michael Lewis does. I love his books. If you don't know, he wrote Flash Boys. He wrote The Big Short. Uh, he writes these stories about things that have happened in the tech world, in the finance world. He writes about them after the fact. But he, it's like they read like a spy novel. And this is a book. The new book is about uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who's the uh, Bitcoin guy who just imploded in epic fashion. And it's awesome. I just read the first 110 pages last night, and it's like, I just can't put this book down. I love Michael Lewis. He could be my hero of the week. He could be my secondary subclause A, subfootnote B, Michael Lewis author. If you haven't read Flash Boys and you haven't read The Big Short and you haven't seen the movie, I think actually the movie The Big Short is incredibly well done too. It's a fantastic film. And if you like Michael Lewis, you should also look at a guy named Ben Mesrick. And Ben Mesrick is an author who did uh, Bringing Down the House. He did Facebook. Um, he's written a ton of books. And they are very similar in the sense that they take these stories and they just turn them into action, action series. It's fantastic. And Mesrick did a book that I absolutely love. And I think it's called The Ugly Americans. And it's about this, the single largest financial transaction in the history of the world that went down in Japan back in the 90s. That book's insane. If you haven't read it, 99.9% of all Americans I've ever discussed this topic with have no idea it happened. Fantastic. Michael Lewis, Ben Mesrick. You're welcome. Did I mention how many minutes on social media over the past two weeks? Zero. Yeah. There's a reason behind that, my friends. Because I'm not cool. <laughs> you all knew that. Okay, let's talk about points now. We got nine points here. And uh, we are just breezing along nicely. I'm assuming by now that 80 to 90% of you have departed to go back to watching something on YouTube. By the way, if anyone has developed a more sinister rabbit hole than YouTube, I don't know what it is. In Instagram was the most perfectly designed weapon I've ever seen in my life towards things like the professional, the brain of the professional photographer. Instagram turned... 99.9% .9 of my friends inside out and still does to this day and also is just an incredible time waste. 
Like the kind of things that you could be doing if you weren't doing that is, is basically endless. But um, YouTube is potentially even worse only because it's long form content. So you're wasting even more time on things that you really have no need or no business watching or, or listening to. You could be doing something productive. I'll give you an example about how dangerously close I came yesterday to wasting time on YouTube where somehow it popped up in my feed. God damn you, you feed curators. It was a 1991 comparison between five of the best SUVs. It was the Ford Explorer, the Chevy Blazer, the little mini Blazer, Toyota 4Runner, Nissan Pathfinder, and something else. I can't remember. Anyway, and I was like, I almost started watching that. And I was like, what, why, the, why on earth would I need to watch a 1991 recap about SUVs, none of which are still on the road, none of which I've, I owned. Actually, I did have a mini blazer. Take that back. And I wanted a 4Runner, but when I ordered a 4Runner like 25 years ago, you couldn't get them. They were sold out everywhere. My brother had the Pathfinder. I did drive that to Fort Lauderdale once from Texas. I really liked that car. But again, do I need to watch a recap of 1991 SUVs? No, and I almost did. And by the way, I'm a pretty disciplined guy. So I imagine those of you who aren't quite so disciplined, you might be watching that film right now. Joel, get off the babysitter. I mean, let's, let's face it, people. It's time to change our lives. Okay, let's talk about uh, points now. The number one point I think is a really, really good one. I can't even say this is a point. This is just my opinion about a topic that I've been asked about a ton. And the topic is about the podcast revolution. How do I feel about the podcast revolution? Well, ironically, I'm making a podcast right now. So you'll, you, you get a pretty good idea that I do like the podcast revolution. There are more people listening to podcasts now than ever in the history of the world. That makes total sense. It's a relatively new concept, and yet it's taken off. I think the type of content fits people's lifestyles really well. You can listen in the car. You can listen on your bike. You can listen while you're walking. You don't need to watch anything. I love audio. I love the podcast revolution. I really do. However, there is kind of a dark side to this whole thing. And one of the people that I get asked about all the time is Joe Rogan. And I've said this a hundred times in other places that I give Joe Rogan a huge amount of credit for building an absolute empire. He is the most listened to podcast in the history of the world. And he did this not, I can't say he did it on his own, but historically, to have a communication channel like that, you would have had to have been part of a big media organization. You'd, and big media organizations are owned by big corporations, and they taint what these outlets and organizations are doing. And that influence of the corporate level has become more and more and more prominent over the last 20 years to the point where networks and journalists and media outlets are compromised to a tremendous degree. And that applies across the board from right wing to left wing. There is no innocent civilian <clears throat> out there. There's people still trying to do good journalism. There is good journalism being done. I think most of it is in the print world. It's not in the motion world. It's not in the podcast world. It's in the print world. And print's slow. And it's dying. And it's not going to ever get the attention it once did. But that's the world we live in. But there is a downside to this podcast stuff. And this is, this is maybe the crux point of this whole topic. I see a monumental 
breakdown and a monumental failure of males between the age of 20 to 30. I should be calling them men, but I can't. They are 20 to 30-year-old boys because they are undeveloped mentally to deal with the world around them. They've grown up with screens in their hands. They've grown up being, in great part, pampered. And they are willing to go along with anything that is put in front of them because they do not have their own thoughts. They have not educated themselves to the level to understand what is being delivered as entertainment and not journalism. They are the ones, in great part, supporting people like Joe Rogan. That is the bulk of that audience, are 20 to 30-year-old males who are willing to go along with anything that is said because they don't either have the ability to fact-check or question, or they don't have the ability and the desire to do so. They're willing to just say, okay, this is what's happening. And what's happened over the past few years is the influence of a guy like Rogan has tangentially spread into the podcast community where you now have uh, tangential podcasts that are in science and athletes. They're in sport, they're in science, they're in medicine, they're in comedy. And these guys are all kind of working together. They have the same guests. They go on each other's podcasts. They sell the same things like AG1. And the other things that they're selling, sadly, are misinformation, conspiracy theory, and pseudoscience. There is not a conspiracy theory or a bit of pseudoscience that they do not love and embrace. And it is evident pretty much every time that there's a guest, and I'm talking about all of these podcasts, and I'll give you some examples. I should have written them down. But the one example that I can remember off the top of my head, and I don't re recall when this was, but I just saw a clip of it, was Rogan was talking to Elon Musk. And Musk clearly has not only some serious anti-Semitic leanings, but he also has pseudoscience leanings and anti-vax leanings. And, you know, the, the thing about these people, the podcast hosts, and the reason why they will talk pseudoscience and conspiracy and uh, is because it puts money in their pocket. That's why they do it. The other example, if I don't forget to mention, is Russell Brand. But Rogan is interviewing Musk, and they're talking about COVID. And Musk's, and by the way, Rogan got very sick with COVID, by the way, he made a film about it. He like posted a picture of himself and talked about how sick he was with COVID. So Musk, we all know, has weird anti-vax theories and weird science theories, and he's a megalomaniac. So he thinks everything that he conceives of is the correct thing. And dude, the t his tech is unbelievable. It really is. I mean, the guy deserves, again, a lot of credit for designing and developing the things that he's doing. We're going to talk about one of his, de his designs here in a minute. But he says, well, when COVID started, I called the, quote, called the Chinese. Now, as a former journalism major... Right there, automatically, my, my red flag is up. What, what do you mean you called, quote, the Chinese? Because, of course, the first question that should have been asked is, when he starts talking about this information, who's your source? Where's your source? Now, if you're talking, quote, the Chinese, that's a couple of billion people that you could be referring to. But what, in, in essence, what he's referring to is he says, I called the Chinese. He's probably saying he called the doctors in Wuhan. Now, there was a, a single doctor early on who was trying to spread information as to what was really happening, and that dude disappeared immediately. The Chinese government has never been and will never be a source of factual information about what's coming out from China. 
So that's strike number one. And, and the host should have said, who's your source? When you say you called the Chinese, who is it? Because are you talking doctors in Wuhan or are you talking about spokesmen for the government who are overseeing the doctors in Wuhan? Again, you have to, who is the source? That is the number one question. And Musk says, well, the doctor said that they made a huge mistake because they were intubating patients and the intubators did more damage than the virus did. Now, I would love to see the actual data in that regard, but anybody, if you know anything about being intubated, it does damage, you know, when they're putting those pipes into you, it's going to leave a mark. Is it doing more damage than the virus itself? I don't know. I would actually like to see some factual data, which of course is never brought up. Musk is just allowed to run free. And when questioned by someone, he responds, I make rockets for a living. What do you do? Now, of course, that is the megalomaniac, I have no immediate close friends answer that a normal person would immediately be called out on, but yet he's given a free pass because he is who he is. So the second follow-up question to something like this is also like a boulder in the background waiting to roll downhill, which is, okay, fine. So say that that's an accurate statement. Say that there was more damage to these people done by the intubation process than the virus itself. Okay. What about the tens of millions of people who weren't intubated? What was doing the damage to their lungs? Of course, was that question asked? No, because it disproves his crazy anti-vax, crazy uh, COVID theories, which don't hold water. And I think the best the rebuttal to what I've seen in one of these podcasts was actually Rogan talking to Bill Burr, the comedian. And Rogan said something along the lines of, so, I mean, you, you really want to see people wearing masks on the street? And Burr said, I don't want to get into this. And Rogan's like, no, 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 why not? And he's laughing. And Burr says, because I don't have a medical degree and you don't either. And the two of us are going to sit here and act like we know more about what's going on than the CDC. It's ridiculous. That's the correct response to a podcast host who's pushing misinformation and opinion and theory all day long. And again, I give the dude total props for doing it. He's built an empire, but I'm educated enough to understand what it is. It's propaganda, misinformation, theory, opinion, comedy, again, and it can be wildly entertaining because one of the things that Rogan does really well is he does really long interviews. And during a long interview, you're typically, if you're there long enough, you're gonna get real honesty from someone who cannot keep their guard up for three and a half hours without giving little glimpses of who they actually are. I really like it. And so that was one of them. The other thing about, and I guess we could talk about this in the, in the next, I'm gonna skip to the point number two. That's my feeling about these podcasts. The reason they're pushing misinformation, the reason they're pushing conspiracy theory, the, the reason they're pushing pseudoscience is because it puts money in their pocket. The damage done to our culture and society and the damage done to the 20 and 30 year olds is we cannot recover from it. The hosts don't care because they're making money and money trumps everything in the United States. We are a greed driven country. And, you know, most of the people out there who are in those positions that are making that kind of money will veil their actions under the, the beauty of capitalism. Well, we're just a capitalistic system and I'm a capitalist, born and bred a capitalist, and it doesn't matter. And so greed and corruption 
are are running rampant in the United States. They've always been there. We've been a corrupt country from the time of the colonies, but greed has really exploded. And I think that these are a perfect example. So I don't listen to these guys because I know now, I know enough having looked and listened enough of each one of these to know what I'm actually looking at. And again, if I wanted to be entertained and they had a guest on, um, like if one of these comedy guys had, had Bobby Lee on, I love Bobby Lee. I think Bobby Lee is hilarious. And typically when Bobby Lee's interviewed, there's not a lot of political debate. There's not a lot of COVID debate. There's not a pseudoscience and conspiracies. They're talking just funny stories about Bobby Lee and what's happened in his life. And I love that guy. I think he's hilarious. Okay, point number two, YouTube. As I mentioned before, I just released a film about procrastination after my trip to Antarctica. And it's not the last film I'm going to put on YouTube. I'm going to do another film that talks about why I'm sort of leaving YouTube. Um, not that anyone cares, but I was never, I never got into YouTube to be a YouTuber. I did it because Blurb asked me if I could do motion content back in like beginning of COVID times. And I was like, I don't know. I've been a still photographer my whole life. I don't know if I can do motion, but I would like to kind of learn how it works. And I don't know, maybe I'll like it. <clears throat> and so I did it for the past couple of years and I just rolled past 15,000 subscribers and I was like, okay, that's enough. I'm kind of done. I don't really like YouTube. I don't like living to someone else's um, insatiable algorithm that I will never be able to crack because I don't want to devote my life to, to YouTube's algorithm. And I don't want to be phony and I don't want to be a grifter. And really, YouTube to me is in great part. Look, if you, and I joke with somebody about this the other day, if you need to fix your toilet, YouTube is amazing because there'll be a how-to. Someone will have a video on your specific toilet and tell you how to fix it. And it's amazing. And I love YouTube for that stuff. I think it's great. I think if you, if you have a Nikon Z8 and you want to learn how to set up the menus for bird photography, you can find that on YouTube. It's great. It's a, it's a technical resource. That is absolutely fantastic. But it is also the most grift-laden network I have ever seen. There is so much grift because the base element, if you're not doing a how-to video, the base element of success is facade. It's fake. It's phony. It's living a fake and phony life to build audience. And that's why so many of YouTubers are flaming out with mental health issues flaming out and leaving the network because YouTube just keeps changing the algorithm. They want more of your blood for less in return. And it is a treadmill that absolutely crushes most people. But here's why I don't want to spend time on YouTube. And I'll use this guy as a perfect example, Russell Brand. And if you don't know Russell Brand, he's a comedian. He is uh, an actor. I first knew about Russell Brand. I can't, I don't remember if I got this timeline right, but the first time I remember like seeing Russell Brand and saying, oh, this dude is hilarious was Finding Sarah Marshall or Forgetting Sarah Marshall, the movie, which was filmed at the Turtle Bay Hilton, by the way, on the North Shore of Oahu. And I, I, I stayed there for 10 years in a row when I was um, doing the Pipeline Masters back in the day. And so I, I started staying at the Turtle Bay before the renovations where you checked into your room and you could not go on the balcony because it was just exposed rebar and crumbling concrete. I mean, it, it was like the building was completely decrepit and then some big brand stepped in and bought it and turned it around. And Forgetting Sarah Marshall was filmed at the Turtle Bay after all the renovations. But Russell Brand was great in that movie. I thought he was hilarious. And Russell Brand, for those of you who don't know, 
it was a very, very far left guy. And Russell Brand is a pretty intelligent dude. He actually is. And he has pretty, some interesting philosophies about things. And so he eventually ends up on YouTube. And he is who he is. He's a left-wing liberal guy. Well, my guess is that wasn't producing the kind of numbers that he was hoping for. So he reinvents himself. And again, I, for anybody who's listened to this podcast for a long time, I've told you this cycle that people go through, that YouTubers go through. And it is to say it's shameless is, is an understatement. With photography or like filmmakers types, it's typically you, you live a, a completely fake life to build your following and you're just producing and producing and producing and you get these huge followers and then all of a sudden your mental health situation kicks in and you flame out in epic, epic fashion. Then you end up finding psychedelics. You go to India, you do ayahuasca, you let your hair grow out, you get a nose ring, you get a tan and you reinvent yourself as a guru. And that's what Russell Brand did. I don't know about all the psychedelics and the traveling to India and all that, but he went from sort of a left, left liberal guy talking about liberal policies to a guru, like a spiritual guru guy. And my guess is maybe that didn't produce the kind of numbers and revenue that he was after. So what he turned himself into was, believe it or not, wait for it, wait for it, the right-wing conspiracy theorist. And everything he does is driven by the most clickbait, right-wing, reactionary, crazy conspiracy theory stuff. And the fact that a guy like that is on YouTube is enough for me to say, I don't want anything to do with this place. Because if you read, if, and just try this, just go to his YouTube channel and read some of the comments. Again, these are the same people that I was saying before, like think that Space Force monitored the election. To, to believe what any of these people are saying at face value and say, oh, this must be journalism. None of these people are trained in journalism at all. It's, it's crazy. And again, 20 to 30-year-old boys who are undeveloped, that do not have their own thoughts, who are undereducated, who have tons of time, who grew up with the screen in their hand, they're the ones powering this. In essence, think about the Terminator movies. You know how in the Terminator movies where the treads of the machine like roll over all the human skulls? These are the human skulls. These are the modern human skulls that are just being chewed up by the system and spit out. The problem is these idiots vote. And that's where it gets really scary because all of these podcast guys are pushing right wing. They're all pushing Trump and they're pushing right-wing theories because, again, it puts money in their pockets. And they've made enough money to where they're, they have a safety valve. If Trump's reelected and things go really go sideways, they can just go to their houses that are out of the country. You know, it's like the top finance guys that are pushing for Trump as well. They're liberals, but they know that if Trump gets elected, they can do whatever they want. And they've got second homes in Porto and they've got second homes in in Montevideo, and they've got second homes that they can flee to if things get really bad. So that's my take on YouTube and the grift associated with YouTube. I just don't want anything to do with it. Speaking of grift, point number three, let's talk about cobalt and lithium. 
So I, as you, I, as I've said before, I'm not a huge fan of this idea that electric cars are the solution to our energy problems. I just think in the in the environmental environment problems. I just don't think that that's realistic based on how far behind we are with green tech and also how far be, how far behind we are in terms of just how we make these things. And so there's just two elements that I want you to think about, cobalt and lithium. So to make a single, we'll take Tesla for an example. Tesla, each Tesla car, from what I've read, requires 40 pounds of cobalt and 110 pounds of lithium. And the frames are made out of aluminum. So I guess technically we're talking about three elements here. Now, cobalt, if you don't know about cobalt, beside it being the name of the bad guy in one of the Mission Impossible films, the one I think, what film was that? Was it the one with the guy who died, overdosed the drugs, super amazing actor, Philip Seymour Hoffman? I think he was the one who was trying to find cobalt, and Tom Cruise was like, no, no, a-hole, cobalt's mine. And he was like, no, give me cobalt. You know, that's the same theme of all the Mission Impossible films, which is why we love them so much. And anyway, cobalt is basically mined in the Congo in the middle of nowhere, and it's mined from the tailings of other mines, and then these guys like sneak into the mines and they risk being shot by the guards because they can get a little handful of cobalt and then they trade it to Chinese middlemen. And it's an absolutely horrible experience for everyone involved, and it's a horrible experience for the planet. But that's how we get cobalt. And each, each one of these cars requires approximately 40 pounds of cobalt. The second thing it really requires due to the battery needs is lithium. Now, if again, we're talking about grift on YouTube, the point number two was grift on YouTube. Ever noticed what's popping up on YouTube as of late? Any kind of advertisements that are ringing a bell that might have a certain tech celebrity who's endorsing a certain kind of investment and the investment might just be about investing in lithium and lithium mining? Gee, I wonder why that is. But here's the thing for you green EV folks who think that buying an electric car is gonna save the world. Each car requires about 110 pounds of lithium. Lithium is the most energy-dependent refinement process in the history of the world. So let me, let's just recap here. What does it take to get cobalt? And what does it take to get and refine lithium? And, oh, by the way, the frames of these cars to keep the weight down are typically made out of aluminum, which has a massive refinement process in, uh, over steel, so again, the energy required and materials and rare earth metals required to make these cars on scale doesn't really make that much sense to me. It feels like, and I've not done the math because I'm mathematically illiterate, maybe somebody can, how many hundreds of thousands of miles would you have to drive one of these cars to offset the energy required to produce it? And on scale, so imagine your buddy down the street who has the jacked up Ford Right? He's got like the six-inch body lift. It's not a suspension lift, like a usable lift. It's just a six-inch body lift that does absolutely nothing to your 4x4 other than screw up the drivetrain. And then he's got these like 35-inch buckshot mutters on it. And then he has the, the fake scrotum hanging from his tail, from his trailer hitch. That guy. Re think about taking that guy and putting him in a Tesla and then all of his buddies in the Tesla and like all of your friends and your family and everybody driving, whether it is a Tesla or a Nissan or a Toyota or whatever, I don't think that's going to work. 
it just doesn't seem like something that's scalable. By the time we would ever be able to scale that up, there has to be a, a basically a desperation technology that will take over. I don't know if that's hydrogen or we just stop driving or we build hydrogen mass transit and trains and people start riding bicycles. I don't know. I'll be dead. I don't really care. That was, there was no point to that. Just kidding. Okay, let's move on. Uh, point number four for you photography absolute geeks out there. You'll love this. My wife this morning had just gotten up and I had just made her coffee for her and she was sitting there just absolutely glazed over like an absolute zombie. And she starts asking me questions about camera gear, which tells you just how out of it she was. And she knows that I have a new camera and a new lens. And she was like, you know, why would you talk about that? What, what different, you know, why would you talk about having this new camera and lens? And I was like, well, I, it's not like I go out of my way to talk about it, but people are going to see it and I'm going to get questions about it. So I might as well just talk about it and get it over with. It's not a big deal. And she's like, yeah, but it's a, it's a Nikon, you know? And she goes, you started your career with Nikon. And I said, yeah, I did. And I, and I said, but let me, let me just remind you until two weeks ago, these are the camera systems I had two weeks ago. Voigtlander, Leica, Hasselblad, Sony, Canon, Fuji, Nikon, Holga. I have all these systems. I use all of these systems. And so I was like, I've had a Nikon. I started using Nikon cameras in 1988. No, sorry, even sooner than that. 1987, I, was, I had a Nikon N2020. What a bizarre little machine that was. So I've had Nikon, I've had a Nikon F3 and a Nikon FM2T for the last 20 some years. I had Nikon F6s, I had Nikon F4s, F3s, FM2s, FE2s. I've had Nikon stuff on and off forever. And as many of you know, I bought a Nikon ZF, a ZF, a few months ago. I used it in Antarctica. Uh, where else did I use it? I took it somewhere else. Paris, I used it a lot. Um, I loved that camera. And so I was like, oh, I want to see what else, you know, Nikon has. And also I'm into birding. So maybe I can uh, check out what Nikon has birding wise. And I got a Nikon Z8 and a 180 to 600. And um, I have had it for about 10 days and I've used it once because I am so busy with work and other things uh, and planning for the next six months. But the end of this week, Looks like I'm going to get a real chance to bird. And by the way, I didn't sell any of the Fuji stuff. I use the Fuji stuff all the time. And because I do filming and stills and my wife uses my equipment as well, that stuff is getting used all the time. In fact, I have a uh, X-H2S behind me with a, three dead batteries from using it. And so, uh, yeah, it's a nice addition. I haven't really used the Nikon enough to really give you a full, full whatever. What I like about it is that it's a full frame camera. And when I bought the Nikon ZF. It had been a long time since I'd used a full frame digital camera. I mean, I had a little Sony that I was not, was just using the Sony, which is full frame. I was using it for video only. So I did not use it for stills. And the last full frame digital camera I had was a Nikon uh, 5D Mark III, which was just so huge and big and clunky. And I never really liked the Canon system. But it had been a long time since I used a full-frame camera. So the ZF was like, a. I was like, wow, I really like having this full-frame. Plus, I just really like the ergonomics of that little camera. It's a pretty, really nice little thing to carry on a daily basis. 
And I was like, okay, if I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to be birding and I'm going to be shooting stills and I have a, a very specific project I have started that is exactly what I'm describing, I was like, it's really hard to carry two systems. So in Antarctica was a perfect example. I sh primarily shot Antarctica with the Fuji systems, which work great. And as many of you had mentioned by seeing some of those images, the color out of the Fuji system is just superb. It's fantastic. And those are just amazing cameras. I love the ergonomics. I love everything about them. But also traveling with a Nikon system, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I got two different batteries, chargers, mounts. And I was like, this is kind of complicated. So there were times when I saw myself traveling with just the Nikon stuff instead of Nikon and Fuji or vice versa, traveling with just the Fuji stuff. And so that's the reason why I bought the Z8 and the long lens. And the Z8, you know, it's a 45, almost 46 megapixel full frame, absolutely top of the line. It's like a, it's the Ferrari, you know? I mean, you pick this thing up, the autofocus is amazing. It shoots 8K and raw uh, footage, which is absolutely stunning. It takes up so much space, but it's great. Um, and again, this, I'm a, I'm a little bit, um, what do you call it when it comes to equipment? I'm non-denominational, right? I mean, I'll go to, I'll go to the synagogue one day. I'll go to the mosque the next. It doesn't matter to me. It's all part of the same thing. What do I want to use to go after a certain goal? When I've used the equipment for a while, I will let you know. I went out yesterday, and all of these cameras, when they're new, they take a bit of getting used to. Everybody's autofocus system is different. All the settings are different. The menus are different. I can say overall, both Fuji and Nikon have really good menu systems. They are so simple and easy to use. Nikon just did a major firmware upgrade on the Z8. Uh, apparently, I, and I had just gotten the camera when the firmware update came out. And I just started seeing all these reports from geeks saying, it's like a new camera. It's like a new camera. This firmware upgrade is unbelievable. So I'm pretty stoked that the timing was, was right. So anyway, and again, it's just equipment. Let's see what you did with it. That's what matters. Okay. Number five, I mentioned before I was sort of departing from YouTube. Um, the interesting thing about YouTube is a lot of people will watch a film, but there's not that many people that listen. So you can say something in a YouTube film and nobody picks it up. Like it's a huge point, a huge part of what you're trying to get across and nobody's listening. They're like, they've, they, something has distracted them and they write comments and you're like, oh, you missed it. You missed the point. So a lot of people thought when I did this YouTube film that I was saying, bye, I'm never going to be online again. Uh, nice to meet you. Uh, I'll see you later. And that's not the case. What I said was I was going to stop posting films to YouTube. I was going to go back to using my shifter site. And when I did a film, I would probably most likely post it on Vimeo and then just host it on Vimeo and post it on my shifter site. So that if you want to know anything about Dan, you just go to shifter. It's all going to be there. It's stills, it's writing, it's my workshops, it's my videos. Anything I'm doing is going to be based on shifter. I like having my own hub as opposed to being a cog on someone else's hub, which is what YouTube is about. So I'm going to go back to shifter. I just had a really amazing phone call with somebody who's helping me out, Charlene, for many of you who know uh, Charlene. She's incredible. And um, we're going to do some minor tweaks to the site. And then we are, I'm going to really build out the, the newsletter. This is the goal anyway at the second. 
I really want to build out the newsletter aspect because I think when it comes to selling books in particular, photography books, the single most successful tool I've ever seen deployed is an email newsletter. It is so much better. It's 10 times more engagement than social media. Just put it that way. So and it's 10 times the amount of time and it's 10 times the amount of engagement is an email newsletter versus social. And McKinsey and company did a big study on this. There's a ton of studies out there about this. If you're a, if you're a non-believer and you think that Facebook and Instagram are the holy grails, you are completely mistaken. They are, for the most part, window watchers and email newsletters are actual buyers. That's the big difference between the two. So I want to build that out. And we're struggling a little bit at the second because I use WordPress for my site, which I like, WordPress Pro. And the idea was to just do a newsletter, build it out, finally send it after 20 years, try to get my subscriptions up just to see what I can get. I'm already at 2,000 people, and I think I could probably double that in relatively short amount of time if I was giving something valuable. So question number one is, what would you like to see in a newsletter? What would entice you to say, oh, wow, I got an email from Milner this month. Here it is in my inbox. I really want to open it because of X. Like, what is X? What would you want to see in there? The second thing is I'm not really sure what software I'm going to use to do it because to do a plugin for WordPress is fine and there's a couple of options that are pretty decent. But at some point down the road if I ever wanted to try to monetize, they're incredibly limited. Which means I'm kind of stuck with an outside party. And that could be Medium, it could be Substack, it could be um, Ghost, it could be uh, Patreon, it could be any of these. But the problem is after doing some research, not a ton, but enough. There's a, there's limitations with all of these. You know, you hear about um, Substack and they've got some real issues with certain content that's being promoted on that channel. Medium seems to have disappeared. Patreon is okay, but it's not like perfect for this stuff. Ghost is, looks amazing, but it's also really expensive. And so we're just trying to figure out how to manage this. But the newsletter is coming and again, Mike, I have a question for you, which is what would you like to see in the newsletter? I'm very curious. And uh, yeah, that's where we're at. So it's coming. Again, it's not a priority. My blurb life is going 100 miles an hour, and we have a ton of stuff coming up, mostly travel. You know, it looks like the UK and Spain and maybe the Netherlands and maybe Germany and uh, those kind of places. I'll give you more updates when we get there. Okay, point number six. Uh, Antarctica photography. I would give myself a C plus in terms of how I did in Antarctica. A C plus. Now, I have no one to blame for this score except myself because I don't shoot very much anymore. And I've said this a million times. I like, I look at photography like a sport. You don't basically show up at the U.S. Olympic trials without practicing, right? You practice every single day to get good at something. And photography to me is exactly the same. And so I don't shoot enough. I'm not sharp. I'm not used to having a camera in my hands. I'm not used to having a camera to my eye. I'm not used to, it's, it's even basically down to simple things like, oh, my, my glasses are transitional and they turn to sunglasses when I'm outside. That's not good when you're looking through the camera. You don't want sunglasses. You want clear frames. Well, I don't have any clear frames. So that, that makes it more difficult to see through the viewfinder. I had the wrong lenses. You know, that's something to, I kicked myself the entire time. Like, why the hell did I not bring a 100 to 400 zoom? 
150 to 600, something like that. And to have fixed lenses when you can't physically move your body, that's, that's my mistake. I had the wrong stuff. And so it's a little humbling, you know, you get out there and you're like, wow, I'm just not very good at this at the moment. To get good, I would have to go back into training. And so when people ask me about that work and how did I do and what do I think? And like last night, a friend here in town was like, hey, I really want to buy one of those images to put on the wall in the house, which is flattering and it's nice. And if he wants it, he can have it to do whatever he wants. If he wants to make a print, that's not a problem. But I just kind of internally, I'm like, ugh. You know, it could have been so much better. I could have just done a so much better job. And again, I think it's easy. I was fortunate. I had training. And I know, and I've been around the photography industry since 1988. I know what's good and I know what's average. And I know what's being done and what's been done. And so if you know that stuff, I've said this many times before, the more you know, the more difficult your life is going to be. The less you know, the easier it is. And I think that's why... Some of these YouTube channels are so popular is that the host doesn't know what's good and what's been done and the audience doesn't either. And it's a match made in heaven and everybody's happy and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But if you're one of these people who has training, who knows and who knows what's been done, it just doesn't work. And so I have to look at myself honestly and say, look, at best, you were, what did I say? A C plus? Yeah, it's C minus C plus. I mean, that's like my average score in school anyway. So it's been consistent my whole life. Okay, upcoming schedule. Point number seven, upcoming schedule. We are starting in March with SPE, Society of Photographic Education in St. Louis. I will be there. If you are around, make sure that you reach out. And by the way, If you don't know about Society of Photographic Education, where, my friends, have you been? Because if you're looking for some of the best photographers in the world, and you're looking for some of the best bookmakers in the world, and you're looking for some of the best photo educators and photo historians in the world, then look no further than SPE. When I first went to SPE, I was blown away. I had spent my life on the commercial side of professional photography, which is frankly where all the cool people are, right? It's where all the fashion and editorial and commercial and advertising and all the celebrity portraiture and all the fancy, fancy people who thought they were great. And all the people who wanted book deals and museum shows and public art installations, and they were all fighting over the scraps because you know what? You know who was getting all the book deals and the public art installations and the museum shows and the gallery shows? It was the educator segment. So when I first walked into SPE, I was like, holy crap. The amount of amazing work was mind-blowing. The amount of book deals, museum shows, gallery shows, public art installations. I was like, no wonder it's so hard to get this shit. It's because all of these educators are getting it all. So I am thrilled to be going back. I love the event. I'm just attending. I'm not giving a talk. I'm not doing a workshop. I'm not doing anything blurb-specific other than attending and reporting back on what I found. Then I'm going to APAD in New York. And if you don't know about APAD, because I know a lot of you don't, because a lot of people have written, written and said, what's APAD? Which again, is mind-blowing to me. APAD is the biggest gallery, photo gallery show in the U.S. every year. The ga- all the galleries are there. A lot of the really good photographers are there. It's in New York. Um, it's a huge event. It's a big deal. And it's, there's a lot of pretentious people. I mean, tons and tons and tons of pretentious people. Put it this way. There will be friends of mine that I see there who will completely and utterly ignore me because there's bigger fish in the pond. And I do not rank 
in that space at all when the big fish are there. And this is about money. This is about photography as art, as money and galleries. It's a really fun thing to attend. We're also doing a photo walk and meet up in New York. And I'm also doing a dinner where I'm hosting six or eight photographers slash creative slash bookmakers that I can pick their brains about the future and the present and printing and all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, in May, I will fly to London for Photo London, and then I go to Menorca to teach my bookmaking workshop in Menorca, Spain, and then we will do a photo walk and meet up in Barcelona, and then I will fly back to the United States, the East Coast, where my van will be parked, and I will then fly to Seattle for a photo walk, meet up, roundtable dinner, and I will go up to Victoria, Canada for a photo walk, meet up, hang out. Uh, and then I will eventually make my way back to the East Coast. And then I will drive my van back across the country to, um, to New Mexico. I missed one of the events in there. I'm actually going to go back to the biggest week in American birding in Ohio in May before I fly to London. And that is an event I did last year. It's an absolutely fantastic thing. And if you're into warblers, which I was not, I never even knew what a warbler was until last year, uh, it's incredible. And the people there are amazing and the stories and the whole birding thing is just fantastic. So I wanna do another um, story about being at the Biggest Week in American Birding. So that's the next few months. And then hopefully July and August, my ass will be in New Mexico because I wanna work on my project here and uh, I have not been here in the summer in three years, and I really miss it. Yes, it's hot. Yes, it's dusty. I don't care. It is absolutely glorious, especially midway through July when the monsoons hit. It's just a magical place to be, so I'm very much looking forward to being home. Uh, point number eight was about the election 2024. I get a lot of people talking, asking me questions about the election uh, what's interesting is I don't get a lot of questions from Americans about the election. I get a lot of questions about people overseas who see and hear what's happening here in America politically, and they're kind of baffled. Like some people are kind of like, you know, it seems on the surface like you guys are losing your mind, um, but it can't be that bad. Really? Is, it, is that re stuff really happening? And the truth is, yes, it is. Uh, the political climate in America right now is the dumbest climate in my lifetime. I wasn't, I, I could have said the worst climate, but I think the worst is just too easy to dismiss. It's dumb. It's really, really dumb in America. We have been skating on thin ice academically for so long, and it is finally, in the age of post-truth, in the age of disinformation, our lack of education has finally bit us in the ass at an epic level. We have somewhere between 40 and 60% of the population in the United States no longer believes that there is something called truth, fact, science. We, we're past it. It is 100% disinformation and love of the untruth that has become part of our culture here. Um, we have the two worst political candidates in my history— um, there is only one that I can vote for. I, I don't have a choice again, and the, I've got to vote for Joe Biden. I cannot believe I have to say that. 
I cannot believe that Joe Biden is our candidate in 2024. The, the Democrats are absolutely, as a party, are useless, absolutely useless. When Biden won in 2020, and by the way, if you're one of those morons who thinks the election was stolen, again, you're the kind of person that I'm talking about that's completely lost any, any touch with reality or fact. Um, when Biden won in 2020, the Democrats had an unbelievable opportunity, as did the Republicans. And neither party took advantage because both parties are so compromised and so destroyed internally. And frankly, they're both so corrupt and they don't, you know, if you're part of, if you got your hand in the cookie jar and you're making some money off of this hand in the cookie jar, how bad do you want to rock the boat? right? Because you're going to have health insurance for life. You're making tons of money. You're getting paid by outside groups. You're consulting. You're giving talks and lectures. These people are not financially insecure. They're not healthcare insecure. They're set for life, right? The, the U.S. Congress is the most purposely dysfunctional group on earth. They are purposely dysfunctional because it's like podcast hosts. It puts money in their pocket, and I'll give you an example of this in a minute. But when, when Biden won in 2020, the Democrats had an opportunity to say, okay, Biden got us across the finish line in 2020, but he's getting up there in age. He's been a career politician. We need to get some new blood in here. We need to find a moderate Democrat that can work with both sides, who's, let's say, mid-50s, that has some unique, interesting, even potentially revolutionary ideas. They may or may not be possible, but at least those ideas are being discussed. We need a good public speaker. We need somebody who speaks a different language. We need somebody with an interesting background, not a career politician. You know, I'm just giving you a rough example here. They had an opportunity to, to basically groom someone for four years to become the nominee in 2024. And what did they do? Nothing. They did nothing. They're going to trot out a guy who I cannot watch give a speech. I cannot watch Biden give a presser. It just freaks me out. I'm like, that is not a guy that I want as my president. He's too old. I'm sorry. I love old people. I don't want that guy as my president, but I got to vote for him. Because on the other side, you have the single dumbest human being I have ever seen, who has just proven to be a completely and utterly vile human being. And by the way, for those of you out there who claim that Trump's no worse than Biden, all I'll say to you is, as someone who's married to a Jewish person, I have never once heard Joe Biden spew anti-Semitic rhetoric, let alone doing it on a weekly basis, which is what I hear coming out of the Trump side and the Republican side. And Trump is a pathological liar, a white, career white-collar criminal, and he's a moron. He thought Finland was part of Russia. He thought his wife was from the Balkans and not the Baltics. He didn't know what Yosemite was. He wanted to nuke a hurricane. He told people to inject bleach as a household cleaner to get rid of COVID. He is a moron, and he has the worst vocabulary of any elected official I have ever seen. And that means all the way down to the local level. And I've seen some local politicians who are absolute morons, and their vocabulary and speaking ability is light years beyond Donald Trump. Donald Trump knows nothing of policy, foreign or domestic. He doesn't care. And to give you an example of how destructive this idiot is, even to his own party, this bipartisan border bill that they were trying to pass that got shot down at the last minute because Trump told the Republicans to shoot it down. The reason why he did that is Trump's entire 
premise for running in 2024 is to secure the border. And if they had done a bipartisan deal to help secure the border, it doesn't help him when he's running. So instead of saying, hey, this is great for the country, he's like, this sucks for me, shoot it down because then I can terrify my base constituents about how bad the border is. Again, this whole thing stems back to the fact that we're undereducated. We're undereducated and people have forgotten that there's something called truth. We now, the United States is now a post-truth culture. And again, I have two candidates that I have absolutely no faith in whatsoever. The, the Democrats under Biden got quite a few policies passed. Legislative-wise, they were super solid. Trump didn't do anything. Um, and it, he's already announced what he will do if he takes power again, which is basically four years of destruction, four years of revenge, hate, sexism, bigotry, racism, and trying to punish anybody who ever said anything bad about him. It will be a complete waste of four years that will set us back exponentially. It will take decades to dig out from another Trump administration because it will be a superstorm of hate. It will be a superstorm of racism and sexism. It will be a superstorm against the environment. And that kind of thing is, man, it takes just if he only if he got into office and he only did the things he was talking about environmentally, about drilling and basically just saying, I don't really care about environmental policy. That's going to take 40 or 50 years to undo what he's about to do. And oh, by the way, for you Dems out there saying, oh, I totally agree. Biden's no environmental president either. I mean, Biden was doing the Willow Project deal and he's in bed with big oil and big, big energy as well. They all are. That's just the way our system is. Everybody's on the take. They are some of the most powerful lobby groups in the world. And they own the members of Congress. They own the presidential candidate. They own the family members. Um, yeah, that's the situation we're in. So I don't have a whole lot of faith in the 2024 election. The funny thing is, if Trump loses, of course, he's going to claim that the system is rigged. And if he wins, he's going to claim that the system is great. You know, again, these morons who were talking about the election was stolen. In the words of Giuliani, he said it best. We got all the theories. We just don't have any evidence. So that's what I think of the 2024 election. Um, last thing I'm going to talk about, this is a good one. This is a fun one, is I was in Texas a few months ago, and I went to the gym. I hadn't been to a gym in 20 years. I hate the gym. I'm not a gym guy. I love working out. I love lifting weights. I hate men who go to the gym. They're the, they're the worst. They're like these podcast people. And I went to the gym and something weird happened. I was in there and I go to the gym to actually work out. And I know that might seem like a novel concept, but I have a routine that is full body routine. And I go from machine to machine to machine and I don't rest because I turn the physical weight workout into a cardio workout as well. And I love doing this. I do it at home and typically at home, but I was like, you know what? I went to the gym like three or four days in a row in Texas and I could definitely feel an improvement. And I thought, you know, I need to go back and start going to the gym again. So I do a bunch of research on the gyms in Santa Fe. And I'm like, these suck. These are really bad. Some of them are, are nice, but they're really expensive. You know, 150 bucks a month to go to the gym. Plus you have to drive, which means your gas and you throw in the time. And it's like, wow, this is a couple hundred bucks a month to do this. And it's a time suck and a gas suck and everything else. It feels like post, like pre-collapse behavior, right? There's a collapse coming, by the way. And so it feels like this is how we think before the collapse. And then the collapse is going to happen and we're all going to have to re we're going to have to change our lives dramatically. So I'm like, I don't want to do this. 
And a buddy of mine is a rucker, R-U-C-K, ruck, rucking, which is basically very simple. It's walking with a weighted backpack. And this is a military thing. I think rucking is a term that comes from the military. Your ruck is your, is your pack. <clears throat> so I borrow this pack from him one day and we go for this walk. We do like a four and a half mile walk and I get done with it. I'm like, whoa, you can definitely feel your entire body, not just your legs, but your entire body has had a serious workout. Now the numbers are something like four times the benefit of walking, nine times less stress than running. Okay. And so running, I've had some, some injury issues running knees, pulled muscles, ankles, plantar fasciitis, all this stuff. And I'm kind of like, man, so I, I'm like, I'm going to try this. So I look out at this company called GoRuck and I look at their backpacks and their weighted plates and they're expensive, 250 bucks for a backpack. And it is, uh, the weights are like 30 pounds, you know, 80 bucks or something for this plate. But I start doing the math and I start doing the math on a gym membership versus a GoRuck. And I realized that the GoRuck, if I buy their pack and their plate, and then I compare that to what I would spend going to the gym, it's somewhere between four and six months. And the GoRuck is guaranteed for life. So I'm like, this is a no-brainer. I'm going to buy the GoRuck and the plate and forego and having to drive to the gym. And by the way, the best gym was 20 minutes away. So that's 40 minutes a day driving, then the workout. And then I'm around, by the way, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm around men who go to the gym and holy shit, overall, you are the, the lowest form of life on earth. Men who go to the gym have never mentally have never left 1980. And I don't mean everybody, but way more than you would think. Ladies, I don't know how any of these men would ever be appealing to you in any way, shape or form. Cretin is the word I would use. So these are guys wearing the torn up t-shirts like they wore in, like the bodybuilders wore in the 1980s where you tear your t-shirt into this little tiny tank top thing that just covers your nipples and then your whole body's exposed. These are, there are guys still doing that. So I go to this gym and I'm looking around at these cretins and I'm like, oh man, I just want to get away from these guys. Then I go in the locker room and you have the serious creep factor in the locker room. You got guys in there that look like they've been in that locker room all day long creepy, shifty, and also men are filthy and disgusting in a locker room. It is just unbelievable how they function in life. So I go in there and of course I sit down and I'm changing and within 30 seconds, Creepazoid is literally sitting next to me. His hip is touching mine. And I'm like, good grief. So then I'm like, okay, I'm never going back in that locker room let alone get in the sauna or the hot tub or whatever. I think that dude's like camped out in the locker room all day long. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to work out. And I go out and I'm doing my, my workout. I'm doing shoulder presses and, you know, with dumbbells and then high, uh, like uh, incline bench press with dumbbells. And I'm going through my like supersets. And there's a guy in front of me who's on the machine that I'm hoping to use next. He's a young guy in his 20s. And I look over and he's sitting on the bench at the machine and he's on his phone and he's on Instagram. And I'm thinking to myself, you gotta be shitting me. What are you doing at the gym and you're on Instagram? I didn't know this was a thing. So I start looking around the gym, man, men and women sitting on these machines for hours because they're on Instagram. They're sitting, they do a set. And instead of like taking a 10 second break and doing another set, they sit and they get out their phone and they go on Instagram. And they're on Instagram for 10, 15, 20 minutes between sets. They're spending hours at the gym 
what, who the hell knows what they do for a living that you would spend that much time at the gym. Nobody's sweating. They're not really working out. They're just basically on Instagram and then doing a couple of sets. And I was like, get me out of here. I'm never coming back. So I bought the GORUCK. I've used it for about a month and my body feels completely different. My pants are already tight. My, my pants, my thighs and calves, I kid you not. And I have like tiny legs. They're already tight. My legs have changed so much. And the first time I did like a five mile ruck with the pack, when I got back, I felt like I'd been run over. I was so spent. Now, again, I'm in the hills and I'm at 7,000 feet and it's freezing cold. So there's a lot working against me, not just the pack itself. But now a month in, not only do I feel completely different, I can rip a five mile ruck in the middle of a blinding snowstorm in high wind uh, and be completely fine. I come back and I just feel amazing. By the way, I also use the ruck pack as my weights. So I have an entire upper and lower body 30 minute workout I do before I do the ruck. I do shoulders, biceps, triceps, back, low back, and two leg strengthening movements while wearing the pack, which is a 30, I have a 30 pound plate in there and I have a space for another 20 pound if I want, but 50 is a bit too much for me right now. 30 is perfect. So I'm using the pack in place of barbells and dumbbells. And I know that sounds weird. And initially I thought, okay, this is a real stretch. I'll probably do this for a while and then say, okay, it doesn't work. It does work. It's actually fantastic. So I'm using it for the 30 minute workouts. And I do that workout probably four to five days a week. And I probably ruck four days a week. And it has been fantastic. And I'm curious what the benefit will be when I get on my bicycle and really start doing some hard rides. I think the ruck benefit on the bike will be immediately apparent. And also not a single injury. I have not, my plantar fasciitis is gone. My feet feel incredibly strong. My legs feel strong. My back and neck are getting better. Uh, it's been wonderful. So I was going to do a blog post about it eventually, about the difference between the ruck and going to the gym, which I will probably do. But uh, that's it. That is our for what it's worth for this month. Apologize to those people who've been asking for this podcast for a long time, and I've just kind of gotten away from it. But I am getting back to it. I love audio. I love podcasts. And again, I'm one person with one opinion. You may agree with what I'm saying, or you may not. The beauty is we can have a discussion here about all of it. So um, go out and do something good and be whoever you are. Be the best version of that.